Well, according to the Federation, I'm a political criminal. You may have heard of me. My name is Blake. Yes. But then we're absent-minded scientists, you see. In fact, we've forgotten your name already. Haven't we, Gambrook? Whose name, sir? And welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 21, where we are looking at the season 2 episode, Killer. This was written by Robert Holmes, and we'll have a discussion about that in a moment, I'm sure. Yes, (laughs) very good. Directed again by Via Lorimore, who's becoming a regular director on this series. Mm -hmm. First broadcast on the 20th of February, 1979. And the ratings for this were an even 7 million, which, although it's slightly down, it's still one of the better episodes for the season. It yes. does at least crack the 7 million. Yes, indeed. Before we get into tonight's discussion, just a little bit of background. This one was recorded second. It was recorded back-to-back with Redemption, so it was done as part of that first production block. It was moved to seventh once they decided to write David Jackson out of the series. The case seems to be Gan only had a very small part in Robert Holmes' original script, so once they'd taken the decision that they were going to write Gan out, it was quite easy to drop him from this, rearrange the order, and obviously they can then pay David Jackson for one less episode. Yes. We also mentioned there as well that this is written by Robert Holmes, and I guess because we're going to make references to this throughout the episode, we yeah. should mention he was a prolific Doctor Who writer in the indeed. late 60s and the 1970s, and indeed a few stories in the 80s. And he's generally touted, I think, as one of the, certainly for the classic series, One of the best writers the series had. Yeah, absolutely. And also was the script editor for Doctor Who for a bit over three years. And indeed, what are arguably some of the best seasons. Yeah, certainly very well-regarded seasons of Doctor Who he script Mm -hmm. edited. And indeed, when Blake Seven was being put together, Mm -hmm. he was off for the script editor's job, and it was him that said, look, no, I'm burnt, I'm not doing it, but I've just found this Chris Boucher guy. Yes. Talk to him. So we will be referencing Robert Holmes quite a bit during the course of this episode. Now... I know we have slightly diverging opinions on this one, so I might actually lead off with my initial thoughts, and then you can respond. Sure. I'm going to start by saying, look, this is a personal favourite of mine. Some of that is undoubtedly nostalgia, because it is one of the very few episodes I did tape at the time it was shown during the repeats. Wow. I didn't always have access to the VCR on Saturday nights in uh, 1982, but (laughs) on the rare occasions I did, I did tape Blake 7. And look, it is one I watched a lot over the next few years, even as obviously the compilation tapes that were coming out, The Killer was never on a tape. I think it's got some really cool concepts. It is a script by Robert Holmes, so look, I think it may be plus one point just for that. <laughs> look, I don't deny there are some holes in it, particularly in the Blake half of the storyline. I've always found it a really enjoyable story. I did actually really enjoy watching it again for this one. So, over to you. Look, I don't disagree with anything you say, but I've got to say off the top, this is not an episode that really works for me. Look, it's probably my least favourite of the season so far. Really? Wow. That, that, though, is a reflection of a very strong season, and it's a record that I suspect will be broken very, very soon. Yes. Um, I'd want to hope so, but yeah, go on. (laughs) Look, let me say right at the top, with the exception of one particular aspect, and I'll talk about that in a moment, 
I don't think there's anything bad in this episode. Mm -hmm. There are no bad performances. The story works. There are, as you say, some really cool ideas in there. There's some really good moments in there. There are some mm -hmm. very good performances in there. Yes. And there actually is a point, and again, I'll talk about this in a moment, where the story did start to come together for me, and I actually was really getting into it. Unfortunately, that was about 13 minutes before the end. Ah. <laughs> but that last stuff is good. It's really just a case for me of it not coming together. Right. To me, the two plot points really never quite feel like they're in the same world. Mm -hmm. Even when they're interacting, they don't feel like they're in the yep. same world. And it's just the whole is less than the sum of its parts. Okay. Let me also just preface here and say I do like a lot of the characters. There's some really good Holmesian characters in here. Yes. Uh, lots of civil servants worried about their pension and, mm -hmm. and clever takes on bureaucracy and yep. admin. I like that. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. One thing I want to reference, though, is there just doesn't seem to be enough plot in this episode. Let me give you a quick breakdown here. It takes nine minutes before Avon and Villa meet Tynus. There's yes. literally nine minutes of them just sneaking around, getting to the plot. Yep. It's 13 minutes before we meet Belfry. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's before we start the other plot. It's 20 minutes before Blake teleports down and actually gets involved in the plot. And then you have several minutes of just listening to the team search the ship. Like, not even searching the ship, just listening to people search a ship. And well, Blake says his budget doesn't run quite that far. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the autopsy takes a full five minutes. Yes. And even Belfry complains it's getting slow. Yeah, I did wonder <laughs> if that was a bit of a meta dig, but yeah, it is. <laughs> so look, there is stuff I like in here. There are good things, and I will praise aspects as we go through, but it just doesn't hang together for me. I do find it dull. We'll talk about that. The one aspect though that I think is outright bad, and again, we'll flag this for ongoing conversation, is this the worst the costumes get in Black 7 full stop ever? I do have a couple of notes here about the costumes. My initial comment is there are times where it's hard to hear the dialogue because of the creaking <laughs> vinyl. But <laughs> Yes. But I can see what you're saying. I think probably the concept, particularly... The abandoned spaceship stuff. I actually think that is a really cool idea. Absolutely. Don't disagree with um, It's a Robert Holmes script, so as you say, there is some really cool dialogue in there. He has that knack of creating characters with one or two lines of dialogue, which is a trademark of Robert Holmes's writing. He really makes you believe these are real people. Yes. Yes, I have seen, particularly, again, the Blake plot referred to as really Blake doing Tom Baker era Doctor Who <laughs> <laughs> or doing a Sherlock Holmes impersonation take your pick yeah because there is some stuff in there that really doesn't work and I guess maybe you can say that's Robert Holmes's unfamiliarity perhaps with the series yeah and maybe even it's an example and you see this in a lot of series with a lot of writers not just Blake Seven not just Doctor Who mm. but a writer is asked to pitch for a series and they've got an idea that didn't work in another one and they couldn't yes. make work and they just think okay well I can adapt this to work here. Mission to Destiny is a classic example that Terry Nation had earlier. Yes, and we did flag, I think, that that may well start in life as something like a whodunit script. Yeah, and so it wouldn't shock me if this was an idea that Robert Holmes had sort of half gestated or, or mm. you know, thought could work, couldn't quite make it work, but when Chris Boucher says, mate, do you want to write for this? He's like, hey, I can give this space virus a yep. go. Maybe, I don't know, that speculation. Um, and I guess you could maybe also make the point, look, if there are deficiencies in the script, given Robert Holmes is obviously a bit of a mentor to Chris Boucher, and I guess he's at least partly responsible for him getting the job of script editor, there is maybe that reluctance really to go too heavily on editing the script. Possibly as well, and, and let's face it, as we've discussed earlier, there are some episodes that required a lot more attention. And you're right, if you're Chris Boucher having to triage your work, yep. the script by Robert Holmes isn't one you're going to give as much attention no, to. No, I wouldn't think so. So look, I had this broken down into two threads, which obviously sit quite nicely with the two <laughs> strands going on, which were Avon and Villa and Blake and the Virus. 
So if we maybe start with the Avon and Villa thread, because that's really where the episode starts. I mean, look, we have our mineral two of faffing around on the Liberator. Yes, and can I just make the point, when they do that joke where Avon says to Kelly, teleport us down, make it quick, yeah. and she does it when they're not ready. Look, that's a really funny line. <laughs> but as a bit of, like, teleport safety, just dropping somebody on a Federation world who's not ready yet, maybe not the smartest No, move. not really. I mean, then again, look, they whip their guns out and Avon gets to do his usual action <laughs> pose when he, <laughs> when he realises they're down safely. Look, but, it is very fun. Maybe I'm overanalyzing. And we then have the bit where they decide they're going to go in through the sewer, which leads to a nice little detail when they first meet Tynus, where they go to use his little basin there to wash their hands. Yeah, and can I say as well, a trait of the Alorimore that I think we're starting to see is that real use of location mm. footage. Villarreal Moore is very big, unlike certain other directors, on trying to use the location to look spacey. Yep. So even though this is clearly just a swamp somewhere next to a building... I think it's actually the exterior of the place where they filmed Redemption, I think. Yes. And again, it's very clearly a 1970s building with a swamp next to it, yes. some wetlands next to it. But he tries to you know, give it those glass shots give it that broader perspective, make it look mm. spacey, let down slightly by those 1970 surveillance cameras. Yes. It is what it is, but you get this sense with Via Lorimore that he's trying to make it look spacey. He is trying to do something. Yes. Yeah. We then start to meet our supporting cast. And look, I had a note here that we really are introduced to two Holmesian double acts. We meet Tynus and Tack, who have their little exchange. And then, of course, we meet Belfryer and Gamble. I did say a minute ago around Robert Holmes's ability to create characters just using a couple of lines of dialogue. You do get a sense of who these people are, particularly probably Belfry and Gamble. I was about to say, I think Tack doesn't work nearly as well. No. He's kind of more just the feed guy for Timus. Yes. But certainly you know who these people are. Belfry and Gamble, obviously close colleagues. They've got that sort of informality around their relationship. They've worked closely together for some time. You get the impression Tynus is very disconnected, really. He doesn't look up when Tack comes into the room. He's too busy there, you know, sort of drawing his grasshoppers. Yes. He is largely disengaged from his job. Yes, that's very clear. Tynus makes the point that he doesn't really understand why Belfry has chosen to bury himself in an outpost like this. Which implies that it wasn't a choice that Tynus made. I sort of had the impression Tynus is basically there to keep his head down. Yeah. No one will notice me if I'm here, yeah. hopefully. What I took away mostly from this early conversation is, again, we're seeing that example of Blake Seven having an ongoing continuity mm. and an ongoing story. Although the conversation that Tynus and Avon have about their past together and what happened before and after Avon was arrested for his fraud doesn't quite gel with what we know from Spacefall. No, and leaping forward a bit, it probably doesn't quite gel with the other part of the story we get a little later in the season. No, it doesn't. But for a viewer who is just watching this series go out in 1978-79, yeah. it's close enough that you could think, oh, that's right, I remember last year they spoke about this. Look, it just enough fits if well, you're just does. watching it casually. The point, obviously, is Tynus is one of the other people that let Avon down, <laughs> led to him getting caught, perhaps, but... Yeah, it, it works. It just doesn't work perfectly. And that's, I think, a really good example of just the evolution of TV at this point. Mm. Blake Seven is happy to have an ongoing narrative and reference its own past, which yeah. a lot of series just didn't do, but it's not doing it nearly as well or correctly or efficiently as modern TV would. No, as you would expect from a modern series. No. Yeah. Avon now comes to blackmail Tynus with the reason they're there. They want the crystal. It's interesting, though, Avon doesn't attempt to bribe Tynus or he doesn't, you know, pull that gem from uh, Shadow out of his pocket. This is for you if you help us. It is very much in Avon's worldview. Tynus owes him. So 
this is just going to happen regardless of whether Tynus wants it or not. Let's get back to the TP crystal. That's what we're here for. You know you're asking me to commit suicide. Is there something wrong with your memory, Tynus? You owe me. Remember? Not enough to put my head on the block. That's very true. I also have a bit of a problem here structurally with the story. Because straight after this exchange, Tynus writes the note for Tack that very clearly yes. is go and get Serverland. Yes, which is interesting. That was the other note I did have. Although, while he's threatening Tynus, Avon doesn't seem to consider the possibility that Tynus might go, well, that doesn't work for me. Mm. I'm just going to screw you. And he acts all surprised when he discovers Tynus has betrayed them. Yeah, unlike the audience, which saw it happen 10 minutes in. So for me, frankly, this whole plot thread never really has much tension. You know Tynus has betrayed them, yes. and there's going to be some sort of confrontation at the end, and you're kind of just waiting for that to happen. Mm. But, look, the journey is good. The journey's good, I can see that. And, look, you are probably sitting there wondering, well, how is Avon going to resolve this without getting caught? You know, is he going to pull something off really smart that gets them off the base well before the Federation arrives, or has he got another trick up his sleeve to fix Tynus up? I agree. The problem, though, for me is that Tynus is never such a threatening character mm. that I really feel as though Avon's ever in danger. One thing it does do, though, it gives Michael Keating something to do. It allows us to see that intelligent side of Villa. He very quickly works out that now he knows that they've been betrayed, that that means something nasty is going to happen to Avon. Yes, Avon can't be handed over to Federation security. No. I agree, and it's a conversation I wanted to have, so let's have it now. Yeah. In Horizon, we spoke about the first example of idiot Villa. Yes. The writers grasp onto the fact that Villa drinks a lot, he's a bit of a fool, he's not as smart as the others, and write him as an, an idiot. Mm. This is a really good bounce back from that. Yep. He's really well done. Yes, he's not engaged in the techno babble. And again, that was a really good little moment there. Tynus and Avon are having their technical discussion, and rather than just waiting for his cue, you notice he is sitting there in the background, just he's bored because he's not following the conversation, and he's just waiting for something to happen. Yeah, and he goes and raids the wine cabinet. Yes. That makes the joke, that must be all of two days old. Yes, and he's sitting there knocking on the case with the grasshoppers. Yeah, and which, which isn't stupid stuff, it's just, look, I've got nothing to do, I'm bored, well, I might as well have a drink and you know, yes. look around. Yeah, really good. Can we keep going and talk about the relationship between yes. Avon and Villa? Both Michael Keating and Paul Darrow have said in interviews subsequently that they loved the Robert Holmes scripts because yep. they always knew that they'll be working together mm -hmm. and they'll have really good stuff to do. And look, this in some ways probably is a weakness of the episode, but it is obvious these are the two characters that Robert Holmes has latched onto that he wants to write for. Yeah, and we get some good examples of the relationship here. I like the fact that Avon is making decisions here on his own. Villa is saying, well, hang on, what will Blake think? And Avon's like, no, I'm running this mission, I don't care. And indeed, Avon reports back to Kelly. And yes. let's Kelly tell Blake what he's doing <laughs> and the delay. Interesting, low and, and importantly, Blake trusts his call. He's not like, mm. get Avon back on the line and tell yep. him this can't happen. And then, even then, that scene, and I think this is one you were going to mention, Richard, where Villa and Avon are chatting about one day Blake might not be making those decisions. Yep. And Villa's like, look, dude, I know you want to replace Blake. And I get the feeling the way the Michael Keating plays it is not just, I know you want to replace him, but... I know it's not going to happen, so this is kind of just funny to me. Nerves getting a little frayed? There are a quarter of a million volts running through that converter. I make one false move, I'll be so crisped up, what's left of me won't fit into a sandwich. I'm a vegetarian. Thanks for the offer, though. What did Callie say about Blake being here? 
Well, something to do with that derelict spacecraft. As long as he doesn't mess up our job, I don't care what he does. You don't have a lot of time for Blake, do you? I could never stand heroes. A quarter of a million volts and you're putting your hand in? Ah, but that is self-interest. We need that crystal. Blake takes risks to help other people. Sometimes people he doesn't even know. One day that great big bleeding heart of his will get us all killed. Unless somebody ditches him first. When he actually makes the call, you notice Avon look up really suddenly. And I think he just gets that moment of satisfaction clearly that he's worked Avon out. And I think had this been shown as it was originally intended early in the season, this probably would have been the flag that, hey, look, Avon's going to try and pull some shenanigans this season. That's true. Good point. But, yeah, I don't know. But it is that moment of understanding between them that they are both really starting to come to an understanding and a working relationship. Now, Richard, look, I know you're running the narrative on this, but I just need to mention a uh, note that I took at this point. Right. I'll read it to you verbatim. F***ing hell, the fireman costumes. Yes, now we did say at the top costumes were something we were going to talk about, so maybe we should do it now. The fireman costume look, I have to say, is probably the end of what are some quite ridiculous costuming in this episode they are really are the final straw yeah so you get the vinyl sort of cape things that everybody's wearing that are completely impractical yes. headbands okay june hudson who was the costume designer yes. has at least gone to the effort of well medical people wear white and officials and bureaucrats yep. wear brown okay so the problem is and this is a sci-fi thing just because we're in the future human beings don't suddenly wear stupid ridiculous impractical costumes no history has always been a variation for blokes of the shirt the suit the pants yeah and this is what babylon 5 did very well where it says okay we're 400 years in the future so it's going to be Earth force people still wear a uniform they still wear a uniform that looks like a suit the civvies are like a suit but a more modern version of a more cut this is just ridiculous you then get the michelin men who were doing the extraction (laughs) which at least you can kind of say okay it's very impractical but i guess it's protective gear then you get to the fireman dudes who were just dressed as like paddle pops or something yeah Yeah. it's just they could not fight a fire in those costumes and they look ridiculous yeah i think probably with the standard base costumes you very much get the idea when she's gone fabric shopping or something june hudson's just found like rolls of brown and white vinyl going cheap i think and they make (laughs) cool costumes you do notice though that paul damon's had his slit up the back. Yes. His has actually got very nice purple lining, and he's had his sort of turned into a long sort of frock coat type thing. But but as you alluded to earlier, Richard, you actually can hear them. Yes, you can. Really, really badly. Yeah. I, I have got some notes probably around June Hudson, which we might do perhaps at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. But yes, at that moment when the explosive goes off and we see the firefighting gear, yeah, I was really like, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> But we are pretty much now, I think, almost at the end of the Tynus part of the plot. I mean, look, the fire goes off, there are the shenanigans when Avon goes in to create the fault and then decides, well, what the hell, I'll just blow the console up and take the crystal anyway. So let me perhaps give you my take on this, Richard, and you can give me your take. I certainly agree that the relationship that Robert Holmes writes between Avon, Tynus and Villa Mm -hmm. and the interactions between that threesome are all really good. Yep. But at the end of the day, it's a lot of sitting around waiting, and it ends because Avon just says, 
okay, I'm just going to get the crystal. Oh, Thomas is here, punches him, and that's it. Yes. Like, like, there is really no clever, dramatic end. No, not really. I suppose you do get the progression when he realises he's being betrayed. And for Avon, betrayal, as we've said before, really is the ultimate sin. Yes. And it is very much, Tynus clearly is dead to him now completely. And that's interesting because I did make the note here that it's unusual for Avon to be more interested in completing his mission for Blake yep. than his own survival, which is now at threat from the virus. Yes. But you're right, if he's being driven by that sense of betrayal... That actually would justify yes. it in my mind. And I suppose the thing is, as he does say in the episode, look, they need the crystal. And that will enhance his survival chances, I guess. So he's willing probably to put himself out. But you're right. Look, I guess after a bit of build-up, probably punching Tynus into an electrified console maybe is a bit unsatisfying. It's not the standard we expect from Avon. So, look, I guess if we now swap to the other half of the narrative, which is the Doctor... Sorry, Blake. uh, (laughs) And the virus. (laughs) We do get, again, and we talked about it in Horizon, we do get this idea that Blake is curious. He is intrigued by the ship. He wants to know how a ship like that got so far out. And, you know, he's obviously really interested because the ship is literally an antique. But he is very much, as we said at the top, playing either the Doctor or Sherlock Holmes. He works out very quickly, really, what he thinks is going on with the ship. He has a lot of what I would think is potentially anachronistic knowledge, uh, referring to pickle barrels and whatever. That's my problem with the first half of this plot, because the second half is the best stuff in the episode, I think. Mm -hmm. We'll get to that. The first half, there is a lot of people giving Blake hints of information and suddenly him saying, hmm... I think I know who these people are. They're yes, this making and these it's, big leaps. And it's all correct. And then there's another bit where the virus starts and he's like, I think I've worked out what's going on here. And just explains it all to Belfry. Yes, indeed. Who is supposed to be the galaxy's leading virologist. So Yeah, it just if there'd just been one yeah. extra obstacle or one extra piece of you know, something Blake had to do yep. or you know, something that he could find, just something that makes it all fall into place for him, rather than him just being this sort of, and this is kind of why I've never much got into Sherlock Holmes, yep. just this, I've seen three very random disparate elements and suddenly I've put it all together in a completely <laughs> unconvincing way. Apologies to Sherlock Holmes fans out there, but yeah. Ooh, yeah, don't upset the Sherlock Holmes fans. <laughs> we also then get the history lesson, the somewhat problematic history lesson, <laughs> which we will talk about in a minute. But yeah. One other note I did have with this, we said that Robert Holmes in some ways probably gets Blake Seven, and I think he does get it fairly well, even down to sidelining female characters. Because <laughs> if you look at here, I mean, Kelly gets the moment where she's obviously sensing whatever's on the ship, mm. and she gets to be all mysterious. But she really doesn't have anything to add to the episode after that. No, once Blake leaves the Liberator, they do literally nothing. No, and I mean, Jenna sort of has her... And I think actually what is quite reasonable concern, but... Blake gives a sort of patronising arm around the shoulder. Oh, I'll be careful. (laughs) And she sort of gives him that okay smile. And you notice then she looks down the barrel of the camera, actually, as she (laughs) she ends the scene. But I have to say, though, the points she does raise are quite sensible. I mean, Blake is intending just to teleport down into the middle of a Federation base. He is very lucky that Belfry and Gamble are Robert Holmes characters. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, he'd probably be shot on sight. But it's a note that I had as well. I think that Belle Fryer accepting Blake 
is very funny. And it's yes. very convenient, and it keeps the plot moving. And yes, that is probably better than a five-minute "Who are you? Why should I trust you?" sort of thing. Yes, it just isn't very believable. No. Having said that, though, I suppose it is in some ways, given they're Robert Holmes characters. Yes, they are shown to be—they're not restricted by blind devotion or rules or anything like that. No, and that's an important Robert Holmes trope, if you like. Yes. And I'll reference here the guys from the Doctor Who podcast, Flight Through Entirety, yep. who have made the point that the thing that Robert Holmes hates the most is bureaucracy yes. and procedure. And, and often in these Doctor Who stories, the enemy is something that's very procedural yes, or indeed. very authoritative. You know, In this one, Tynus is the bad guy because he's in charge and he's bureaucratic, whereas Belfry is the good guy because he doesn't care about the rules and he's just doing his own thing and living in his own world and living his best life. Indeed. Just a quick sentence here, of course, it was the London model. Yes, it is the London. Very nice reuse of the footage there. Yeah, good to see that one again. So, at this point, they've recovered the ship. We then move into the autopsy. All five minutes of it. Yes, and of course, we meet Morris Barry. Very good makeup on the corpse. Somebody has put a lot of time and effort into making that extra up. And I can remember being 12 and seeing this for the first time yep. and being really freaked by that. Mm. The thing where it comes alive didn't yep. shock me so much because I kind of saw where that was going. Yeah. But just the look of it was really creepy. Yeah. It's really effective. And I have to say, actually, also kudos to the makeup. People, when you start seeing the effects of the virus, that makeup for the blisters and stuff, that is really nasty. That is really good. A clever Robert Holmes moment as well that I will praise in the autopsy scene is that, that very sort of dull procedural thing about, oh, now in accordance with the law, make sure that... Break. <laughs> like, you see, they go, oh, for God's sake, get on with it. But then the bit where suddenly the ECG... Kicks in the life. Kicks in the yeah. life. That's a really cool moment. It is. So, look, Richard, again, can I just give you a couple of thoughts on this to maybe yep. frame where I'm coming from? The first half of this Belfry virus plot thing, I don't think works because the tension isn't quite there. The autopsy is too dragged. And even when the virus starts, the medical doctor comes on. And look, it's a very professional portrayal of a doctor. Yep. But it's very, I've got this, it's okay. You know, quarantine procedures are in. Belfry doesn't care. Blake isn't worried. So why should I be? Yep. At the 35-minute mark, though, the moment where we cut back and see the Doctor's dead, and it's like, okay, this is really escalating, then you get some really cool panic scenes, you get a real sense yep. from the director. Again, the Villory Moore really goes to a lot of effort to use as many extras as he can, lots of background noise to give this sense that there's a real epidemic yes. happening. Yep. That last 15 minutes of the virus is really, really good. Mm -hmm. If that had been brought forward by 10 to 15 minutes, this actually, I think, could have been a really exciting episode because... Okay. I was getting into it, this idea, you know, like, viruses are scary. Mm. As Villa says, you know, you can't see them, you can't hear them, you can't smell them, and suddenly you're dead. Yes. You know, that is a scary thing. Under control. You know this could be another Tassaris. What? You remember the Tassaris swamp fever? Killed millions. Well, there aren't millions here, so don't worry about it. Well, I'm here, and I do worry about it. I don't like bugs. You can't hear them, you can't see them, you can't feel them, and suddenly you're dead. It just comes too late. Yeah, OK. I did have the notes here. Things start moving very quickly once the infection starts to spread and the gamble dies with less than 10 minutes to go. Yes. And again, that's another really good escalating of the tension because suddenly yep. the relatable character, the nice guy... Yeah. And they don't pull any punches. Like He's like, oh, okay, I, I, my memory's going. It's like, okay, we know that's a sign. Then yep. yeah, it's, it's you, really you good. You end with him convulsing on the floor. Yeah. And again, I love the direction there where there are people passing by with that sort of like... I'm stopping to look what's going on, but no, I'm not stopping to help him. No. And you're right. Look, Blake, 
as we've said, really starts arriving at conclusions here very, very quickly. Now, it does culminate probably in his uh, somewhat unfortunate history lesson <laughs> on Redskins. Yes. Now, again, I know we've said, look, we're really not going to pick on a 40-year-old TV show for not being woke enough. No, I don't blame the show for using it, but I, yeah, when I heard that line, I did have a moment of, ooh. Yeah, I do think that's probably a little unfortunate. Maybe, look, it is the Robert Holmes thing, because I know, look, one of the criticisms of Holmes is he's a fairly old-fashioned writer, shall we say. Yes. Having said that, look, here in Australia, there were such things as redskin icy poles, or ice lollies if you're English, and there were redskin chewy lollies. Yes, I remember them. Both of which used Native American imagery and indeed recreation to advertise the products. Oh, look, I remember it being a very common term, you know, redskins, red Indians in the 1980s. Yes. It is of its time. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Let's just leave that there. Yeah. Yeah. We're now really... Moving into the latter stage of the episode, Blake has teleported back up to the Liberator. With no quarantine? No. I did make the note here, I think it's missing probably a line of dialogue, that Revenge of the Cybermen thing, that the virus would be sorted out and extracted when they teleport. But the thing is, it's the same with Avon. Like, I never feel as though Blake or Avon or Villa are in danger of getting it. And none of them express a danger other than Villa sort of in a very Villa-esque way. What would have made a very big difference if Blake maybe been updating Jenna... And Jenner had said, well, hang on, there's a virus down there, get out yep. now. And he's like, no, I'm choosing to st-. Like, just some acknowledgement yep. that he was in danger. Or ORAC tells them that teleporting should remove any pathogens in their system or something. Yes. Yeah. But as I say, those crowd scenes, those mass panic scenes, yes, indeed. really well done. We are probably now really at the end of the episode. Everyone's back on the Liberator. Avon and Villa have teleported up as well. We now get the poignant final moment with Dr. Belfry, where he gets to deliver his final message, complete with Blake's interruption, just as he's about to give the formula. (laughs) I did notice that as well, yes. (laughs) The uh, virus is easily cultured in human tissue or in nucleic acid solution. Now, uh, here is the formula for the antiserum. Dr. Belfra, are you saying that this virus is only effective against human beings who have been in deep space? Precisely. It fits your theory. But I don't think the virus was designed to destroy man. Merely to confine him to his own planet. Again, it's really well done. Belfry knows that he can't save Phosphorin. By about probably the halfway two-thirds mark, he has really resigned himself to the fact that he won't be getting out of this. And probably nobody on Phosphorin will. Yeah. And again, had they had that line about the teleport can cure it, mm. and Blake had said, well, come with me, and he said, no, I need to finish my work, Yeah, that again would have escalated it. That said, though, the way that Belfry's final speech is done is very good, and the, the concept of the Terran ague and the way yeah. the virus has been designed the intent, that is really cool. It is. As I said at the start, there are a lot of ideas in this I really like. Mm. I like the last 10 minutes. It just doesn't quite come together. No. Again, as we've said with some of the Series 2 ones, maybe, look, another draft of the script might have helped. And, look, there is another Robert Holmes script to come later in the season, which I think, again, also has some great moments in it. I'm a big fan of that one. Yeah. The episode does end with everyone on Phosphoron is dead. Villa gets to make his little joke about Phosphoron ends. Transmission ends. Phosphoron ends. It's no joke, Villa. Only to be slapped down by Callie. Yes. You then have the moment where Blake is going to leave the plague beacon and Avon tells him not to, which I did think is perhaps a little too unrealistic or calculating from Avon. But when I was 12, I absolutely bought it. Yep. And I think it's probably one of those lines that works on a viewing and wasn't designed to be no, an- analysed yet. Yeah. Oh. 
All right, so that's really probably the end of the discussion, unless you've got... No, I think I've made my points. So look, maybe just a few quick production notes before we go into our regular segments. As we said at the top, this was filmed back-to-back with Redemption. You can see that if you look at Avon and Blake's costumes. Yes. Avon's particularly with his uh, leather flares. And Blake's Batwing costume. Yes, indeed. We mentioned Gam was in the original script. Because this was filmed back-to-back with Redemption, he got a few days off while this one was being recorded. I actually think having Gan in here would have been really interesting with him, Jenna and Callie with nothing to do. Just sitting around on the Liberator. Something about, and Jan Chappell also got time off, obviously, while the studio stuff was being done because they weren't really needed for any of it. <laughs> you would hope so. Did you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did make a note here. The shot of the Liberator at the end of the episode, unfortunately, is one from Spaceball that has the little model of the London sitting next to it. <laughs> now, we talked about the costumes. This is June Hudson's last credited work on the series. Okay. Yeah, she was the costume designer for the first production block, so she's not credited on trial because that was done as part of the second block. Her last work on the series was actually Horizon, given the the way they were filmed. But this is the last time we will see her designs. And look, as we said when we introduced June Hudson to the Blake 7 universe many episodes ago now, Mm. I give her a lot of credit for trying to do something different. And when it comes off, it's really good. I said it back in Pressure Point. Mm -hmm. I think that Serverland's costume there is the best one that Serverland gets in the series. And there's some really good stuff there. It just doesn't land at all here, and no, it's just silly. I do sometimes get the impression with some of June Hudson's stuff, you're right, look, when she gets it right, she has some really good stuff, but sometimes there is that sort of sense of what she can get away with. Yeah. And I know, look, there were times David Maloney was extremely unhappy with some of the designs she came up with. She said that, well, he told her to take a lighter, more sort of space opera type approach. I think his rejoinder was, well, what I told her and how she interpreted it are two different things, clearly, <laughs> but... Yeah, as I said, this is June Hudson's last episode, so on to our regular segments. We'll get into our guest cast then, Richard, and just a note, we've got a number of guest cast here with yep. really good CVs. Indeed. It's a very well cast episode. I, there was not a bad performance in this. I'll lead off, and we will get through these relatively quickly because there are six of them. So Paul Daneman, who played Dr. Belfryer, again, got a lot of good work, nothing really big. But consistently in work, he was in Zulu as Sergeant Yes, Maxfield. he was. He's the feverish NCO in the hospital who's berating Hook. Yes. Yep. Uh, he was in The Life and Death of Sir John Falstaff in 1959. Right. He did a lot of 1960s Shakespeare on TV. He did. He was actually, when they did The Age of Kings, the big landmark thing they did where they went through all Shakespeare's plays in chronological order, he was Richard III. Yes, he did a lot of that stuff. How I Won the War, he went through, he was Douglas Hurd in the... TV movie Thatcher The Final Days in oh, yeah. 1991. And we have got a Rumpole episode. Yes, I did note that. Not only was he in Rumpole, but he played the Lord Chief Justice of England. Right. He was also the original Vladimir in Waiting for Godot, or at least the English version of it. Okay. Um, the play was first staged in Paris in French, but when it moved to the English stage, the first time it was staged in English, yes, he was the original Vladimir. Yes, that play where once you realise Godot isn't coming, it's really just waiting. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, And we haven't mentioned making Blake 7 this time. An anecdote on there was he had worked with Paul Darrow immediately prior to Paul Darrow getting the role on Blake 7. And he was apparently, I think, friends with Gareth Thomas. And there is a story that while they were filming this, They thought they weren't going to be needed for that night's recording, so they repaired up to the BBC bar and then suddenly were brought back down again, I think a little inebriated, to rush through a couple of scenes. So that maybe explains his rather urbane performance, perhaps. 
So there you go. Now, playing Belfry's assistant, Gambrel, is Colin Farrell. Now, it's not that Colin Farrell. Uh, if you go on IMDb, he is Colin Farrell too. <laughs> he had quite a long career. I don't think he really had any major starring roles. He is in quite a memorable episode of Porridge, alongside Ronnie Barker playing one of the other prisoners. He plays a guy he steals from David Jason's character, and they set him up to get Blanco's things back by giving him a, basically a fake treasure map. Right, that, um, yes, And it ends yes. with him digging up a football pitch at one of the... Um, yes. yes. Okay, yep, I do remember that one. Uh, yeah. One of the major football clubs. Right. Yes. A couple of notes I had for him. He was in Oh, What a Lovely War, oh, yeah. which was a big deal at the time. Crown Court, Trinity Tales, had a long recurring role in, in Loving Memory in the early 80s. Right. Again, he did a lot of Shakespeare in the 90s when they did The Wars of the Roses. Right. And an episode of Kingdom. There you go. Now, perhaps if we move on to the other half of the base, we would start with Ronald Lacey. Shortly after this, he would go on to maybe what's one of his better-known roles, which is in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where he plays the Gestapo officer, Tot, complete with branded hand and everything. <laughs> he is also, of course, the Bishop of Bath and Wells in the second season yes, of Blackout. I did not know that. No, no, he's very heavily made up in that, but... And you didn't give him his correct title, Richard, which is the baby-eating yes. Bishop of Bath and Wells. <laughs> yes, he's very made up in that, yeah. yeah. He is really good in that too. Yeah, really good. He is also in Porridge as Harris, one of the prisoners no one really likes. Yes. A lot of credits here. He was in the 1967 Great Expectations. Like Paul Damon, he was also in How I Won the War. Yep. Lots of armchair theatre stuff. Two episodes of The Avengers, A Cat Weasel. Yes. Some some Jason Kings. And he's in my favourite ever bit of television, uh, Sherlock Holmes actually, which is the Ian Richardson Hound of the Baskervilles. Oh, yes. He plays uh, Inspector Lestrade in that. There you go. Considering saying you didn't really like Sherlock Holmes a few minutes ago. But... <laughs> That's a very cool movie in its own right. I'm, I'm a big fan of that one. Not the Tom Baker, Hand of the Baskervilles, no. Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> now, Titus's assistant, Tack, is played by Colin Higgins. A mm-hmm. couple of things I noted here. He was in The Naked Civil Servant, People Like Us, and a couple of my favourite dramas, Brideshead Revisited and Cambridge Spies. Right. But I think his more famous role, Richard, is something you're going to tell us about. Yes, he's probably more famous, I think. He was the original Wedge Antilles in Star Wars. He's the bloke at the end of the briefing scene who says, That's impossible, even for a computer. I must have been after you told me that. I did go and look up a photo, and, and yes, I did recognise him once I saw him. Yes, although he's not named as being Wedge in that scene, and obviously Wedge later becomes a different actor. Yes. The story goes that he was hired as Wedge. He had a much longer scripted line, which he missed a couple of times. And because at that point in the production of Star Wars, they were really up against the clock, it was just cut and he was let go. And then they hired Dennis Lawson to do the stuff in the cockpit. He was in some other stuff too. Like he was in a few episodes of The Bill. He was in Lovejoy. Uh, he was in a couple of episodes of Minder. He was in reg- regular work. Yes, he was. Yep. I'll mention quickly Michael Gaunt, who plays Dr. Bax. He's actually in four Blake Sevens. But this is the only one where you see him on screen. His voice is in all the other. Oh, yes, he is. Yes, he's computer voices. Yes. And a pilot voice in other... Yeah. Yeah, he's always off-screen voices, but this is his one appearance. Right, there you go. And, of course, rounding out our guest cast is Morris Barry. Dr. Wyler. Yes. Now, he perhaps is best known now, I think. He was a Doctor Who director on three Patrick Troughton stories. Yes, most notably Tomb of the Cybermen, I think yes, fair to and, say. Yes, and Moonbase and the Dominators. Yes. He was a director and a producer for a number of series from the late 1960s. Probably the best known of those is the original series of Poldark. But 
he actually is somebody from the late 1970s. He then starts getting small appearances in acting roles. Yes, including in the Doctor Who story Creature from the Pit. Yes, indeed. And also I'll note just for genre fans, the 1981 Day of the Triffid series. Yes. Plus he's in other things like he's in All Creatures Great and Small, um, he's in Heidi High. But yeah, he's somebody uh, seems to have come to acting quite late. So yeah, as I said at the start, that's a really impressive guest it cast. It is, that is a very impressive guest cast. It's probably one of the best action casts we've had, I think. Certainly since early season one, yeah. Yep. I guess that brings us now to our next regular segment, which is, look, it was the 1970s. Now, I had a couple of notes here. One, I guess the virus perhaps is around the time you first start to get the mentions of the superbug. It is. It's also that time where people are talking about weaponising viruses and that that sort of threat. And look, we need to reference, of course, Terry Nation Survivors, which was from 1975 to 77, we've spoken about before. There is also that episode of Babylon 5 some years later, one where the race, the... The Barkep. Yes. Confessions and Lamentations. That's the one. Uh, all get the plague, and unfortunately by the time they've worked out the cure, they go into the sealed section of the base, and unfortunately they've all died. Yes. It is a, uh, a trope of sci-fi. We've mentioned, obviously, the Redskins reference, which, again, dates the show. Yes. I have actually a little bit of real-world uh, reading about that. Lord Geoffrey Ashby is actually incorrect. The historical figure was Lord Geoffrey Amherst, who was the British commander of forces in Canada. He defeated the French at the end of the French and Indian Wars. Now, he is apparently known for being quite, uh, shall we say, old-fashioned in his view of native populations, and his letters do indicate a desire to remove the Native Americans from the British sphere of influence by any means necessary. He was known to be quite harsh on the native populations, particularly after there was an uprising in the wake of the war. So, look, he certainly was aware of and did approve plans to introduce smallpox to the natives. Whether he actually did it himself or not, I think, was open. But, yes, his letters do confirm that was something he was aware of. One note I did have, actually, is that there is no computer in that part of the base, which is that ongoing idea that in the 1970s, computers are seen as mainframes. Yes. And once their sort of little dumb terminal goes down because of the fire, they have no computer. The additional point that I had on the back of that is that when Belfry needs to give Blake information, he gives him data cubes. Yes. Which was advanced for where we are, but now just looks so primitive. It's like, well, you've got ORAC, why can't you just Wi-Fi it up to it? Yes, exactly. Then again, I suppose Babylon 5 used those little data crystal things 15 years later. That is true. Whether they were seen to be secure or something, I don't know. Our next segment is the Liberator database. Now, there is a bit of stuff here, actually. We probably get our first real dating of when Blake 7 is set. It specifically stated that the ship is about 700 years old. And that it was one of the first ones to leave the planet. Yes, Now, it doesn't actually define what deep space is, so whether it's the first interstellar ship, and there's obviously been all this stuff within the solar system prior to that, but it does give us a time frame. We are 700 years on approximately from the launch of that ship. It's said that they're very slow. They're obviously quite short range, and the crews, even travelling short distances, could be on the things up to 30 years. Yes, and would use... Hibernation pills. Hibernation pills, yes. Yeah. 61 Cygni... Uh, we get the idea that it's sort of the Bermuda Triangle of space. The Darkling Zone. Yes. In real life, 61 Cygni is about 11, 12 light years from Earth, which would be consistent with probably these first leaps out into space in the surrounding yeah. stars. It does obviously raise the question of how the aliens got it to Phosphoron and why Phosphoron, which is somewhere, what did they say, 3,000 years away or something. But that part of it does actually work, really, I guess. Yeah, look, that is a very good part of the script. 
I noted as well it's another reference to the fact that there are aliens out there in the galaxy. Yes. And indeed, when Kelly says that she detects life, Blake actually asks her human life. Mm. So he is clearly open to the possibility that it is not. No. And look, we have been told before that there are definitely aliens existing in the galaxy. Yes. And of course, there is another mention of Avon's detector shield. Yes, that was a nice piece of continuity. Yes, even if Villa does say he's expecting it to break down at any moment. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I noted here is that Blake specifically talks about keeping ahead of Serverland, mm. not the Federation. And then later yep. on, Avon references her as well. So we're now at that place in the universe where... It is not so much about the big faceless federation. No. It is about Serverland. She is the series' big bad. Yes, and indeed, Tynus, when he sends the message, sends it directly to Serverland. It's not, hey, nearest federation base, the Liberator is here. Yes. It is sent to Central Command to Serverland. And again, they even think Serverland is going to come there at the end of the episode. Yes, personally. Yeah, rather than just send, you know, a fleet of ships. Yeah. She herself is going to turn up there. Now, our next segment is our ongoing series of what happens next. Now, I think the fate of Phosphoron is pretty well determined. Ah, uh, I think so. But I had the query, given that Serverland now knows that Blake has been there... Yes, this is a note I had. Assuming that Cubase is known for being that telecommunications place, yep. how quickly does Serverland work out why Blake was there and actually just invalidate their whole mission? Yes, and Avon even actually says that during the episode. Yeah. As soon as they work out we're here, it'll take them five seconds to work out what we're here for. Yes. So, may all have been for nothing. Now, probably into our lighter segment, what cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? Or, as I've redubbed it for this episode, what cool lines did Robert Holmes give Villa this week? Yes, because it really is Villa with the one-liners. It really is. Yes. And look, I had a few. I very much like the one, nice, when Avon holds out the hand of friendship, watch his other hand. That's the one with the hammer. <laughs> My favourite was actually one a little bit, little bit earlier where Avon says, I told you, he's a friend of mine. And Villa replies, yes, I always knew you had a friend. I used to say <laughs> to people, I bet Avon's got a friend somewhere in the galaxy. And then Avon comes back with, and you were right. That must be a novel experience for you. <laughs> <laughs> or indeed at the end where Avon is fighting with Tynus and says to Villa, why didn't you help me? Never come between friends. That's my motto. <laughs> And yes, I did enjoy the line you referenced earlier, Richard, about, by the way, why don't the detectors pick up the Liberator? Anti-detection screens. One of Avon's gadgets. We're expecting it to break down any time. <laughs> so yeah, all the cool lines I had this week were villas. And credit to Robert Holmes for writing that character so well. Yep. We're now at the end of the episode, so we're really up to Player of the Week. So Dave, who did you choose? I, in the end, went with Paul Damon as Dr. Belfry. Snap. Okay. <laughs> Look, his character is written really well by Robert Holmes. As yep. you said, you know who he is, but he plays it in such a way that you believe this is a real human being. It's I, I, very understated. It's very understated. He works well with Gareth Thomas. He does. And, yeah, there are a lot of good performances here, but, yeah, I just thought he was the standout. Yeah, likewise. It's a very calm and very understated performance. I did have an honourable mention for Ronald Lacey as Tynus, because, actually, I thought with what he had to do, he was quite good. Uh, yeah, look, I'd agree with that. And indeed, for an episode where our opinions are, you know, a bit different, yep. that's a nice piece of consensus to it finish is, on. Indeed, that's true. So has your opinion changed over the last 50-odd minutes? Look, as I've talked about it, I've realised there are even more good bits in it than I yeah. remembered and than I realised. I still think it's slow. I still don't think it hangs together. Yep. And that's a shame after a number of episodes that really have worked quite well in this season. Yeah, I've always enjoyed it, and I still do. So... Thumbs up for me. No, fair enough. 
So that's our conversation about Killer, but we will be back next episode looking at Hostage. Now that might be a bit more of an interesting discussion. <laughs> there are definitely a few production things to talk about there. And most definitely. Yes, that'll, that'll be a conversation. But until then, I've been Dave. I'm Richard. Set course for X-Bar. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. to say I did you a favour and now I'm collecting. Nice. When Avon holds out the hand of friendship, watch his other hand. That's the one with a hammer.